years come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to up and leave it A couple weeks back, Sam Soholt, a name you know as the owner of Public Lands Tees and a professional photographer, and also a tremendous friend of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. He's been instrumental in conservation crossing promotion, build a wildlife area fundraisers, National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. He always brings the public lands bus or the public lands van to the show floor of Pheasant Fest. And uh, also really valuable to our Pollinator Week efforts in years past as well. Well, well a couple weeks, Sam contacted me and said he's got a new scheme, a new idea to build on top of his uber successful Stamp It Forward program in which he's helped sell thousands of federal duck stamps to create funding for wildlife habitat. So that got me thinking, you know, obviously we're going to have Sam on this podcast, but duck stamps create, were created for the duck hunter, for ducks and geese in mind to create habitat for waterfall. However, duck stamps do an awful lot of good for pheasants, prairie grouse, quail, pollinators, and all sorts of upland wildlife. So with waterfall season opening up across the country in many states this month of September, I've gathered a group together for this episode of On the Wing podcast to talk about duck stamps and their importance for the uplands, how duck stamps help pheasants forever and quail forever create upland habitat for our mission focused on pheasants and quail. So obviously, as I mentioned, we've got Sam Soholt, co-owner of Public Lands Tees in a tremendous national advocate for conservation initiatives. We've also got Aaron Sandquist back to the podcast. He's been on hiatus ever since episode one of the podcast. He was the very first guest I had on this podcast uh, for Anatomy of a Land Acquisition. Um, Aaron's back for this episode. He's PF and QF's Director of Conservation Delivery for the Midwest. And new to our podcast, but not new to the organization, Scott Glupp with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, He's a biologist and project leader in Minnesota. And let's start with Scott. You know, I I said your name. Is it Gloop or Gloop? I it's, I, it's Gloop. Gloop. I thought I yeah. I should have trusted myself. I I screwed up. I I always get confused by the spelling, which is G L U P. Um, so like it looks like Gloop, but I know better. It's Gloop. Anyways, um, Scott, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where you're from? You know. Tell us what kind of bird dog you have and uh, how you're connected to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Well, I grew up in a small town north of Omaha, Nebraska, northeastern Nebraska. Um, Grew up, my dad was a big outdoors person. Grew up hunting, fishing, trapping, uh, running the Missouri River. 
had a love for the out of doors from the day I was born. I went to the University of Nebraska, uh, got a BS and MS in wildlife management. And I did my initial research for my master's thesis of Valentine National Wildlife Refuge, Ooh. researching impacts of predation and land use on waterfowl nesting. Since that time, and I have over 38 years now in the service of the American public working for the Fish and Wildlife Service, I've worked in Fish and Wildlife Service stations in Nebraska, Kansas, North Dakota, South Dakota, and now in Minnesota. Um, and as far as my bird dog goes, my <laughs> current dog is named Rika, and she's a four-year-old yellow lab with the most energy I've ever had in a lab. Uh, she keeps me on my toes, and, and for an older guy, it's kind of good because she keeps me running. <laughs> well, I I apologize for butchering your last name. I feel feel I should have known better. But um, it, let's let's talk about your bird dog's name. What's what's Rika mean? Well, my previous dog, my father-in-law was Norwegian. So when we were getting her, she was a little black lab. They were asking uh, my father-in-law. My kids were asking my father-in-law what kind of names could we Norwegian type names could we use. And in this case, uh, I'll share, first they asked what black is in Norwegian, and that's something to the effect of svart. <laughs> well, we see the problem immediately with that dog. <laughs> and then they asked dog, <laughs> and dog is hund. Well, that didn't work. And so they asked girl, and that was yenta. So with this one, we wanted to try to make the same run. And, and basically, if I recall right, it's a Swedish uh, uh, word for something like pretty girl, mm. something to that effect. So, And it's shorter than Ludafisk. Yes. <laughs> that would not work well either. And, and I know... <laughs> marrying a Norwegian woman, I know all about Ludafis now. <laughs> and uh, you're you're something of an avid pheasant hunter too, aren't you? Oh yes, I love chasing roosters. I love chasing all kinds of upland game, and I'm a big waterfowl hunter as well. I kind of stick with critters that have feathers. All right, me too. Well, thank you for joining us. We'll, we'll jump to, to Aaron. Welcome back after a long hiatus. Hiatus, you didn't know you were on some double secret probation, did you? No, not until just now, but thanks for having me back. <laughs> um, we, we, we'll get it out of the way first. You have Britneys in, in a few of them. Arguably the best breed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got two Britneys, uh, Ellie and Penny. Um, I cannot give you the background on their naming because all naming runs through and is created and approved by my wife, Melissa, mm -hmm. my daughters, Jaden and Ava. So I have no ability nor say in, in naming any of our Britneys. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about where you're from and what you do for the organization, Aaron. Sure, sure. Well, um, I'm happy to be celebrating my uh, 21st year with the bird club. So time goes by really quick and have been able to serve in several different capacities with the organization. And um, for those uh, of us internal, you know, I argue that I was the first farm bill biologist, although not by title. And 
that is debated among uh, many of the tenured staff in the organization, but started there in Stearns County and and now, it's like you said, serve as the director of conservation delivery for the Midwest region. So I uh, get to work with a lot of great partners, uh, a lot of great team members in, in the organization and, and folks like Scott to make a difference on the on the ground. Uh, Delano native, Delano, Minnesota native, uh, much like Scott, grew up uh, on the banks of uh, the Crow River hunting and fishing, come from a family of, of outdoor lovers and uh I'm blessed to have, you know, like I said, my wife, Melissa, daughters, Jaden and Ava, who love to get outdoors just as much as I do. Uh, I'm also a proud graduate of St. Cloud State University, Bob, uh, go Huskies, where I got my <laughs> bachelor in biology. And uh, like I said, started out with Pheasants Forever right after graduating college. So it's been a great ride. And um, Aaron has the distinction of winning more MVPs um, as the most valuable employee in the organization than any other employee. I don't think you're allowed to win it anymore, if I recall correctly. There's a special Sandquist rule within the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever employee structure. Do I have that right? I, I think you need to rephrase that. I don't deserve to win it anymore. Um, there are so many great and passionate people in our organization that deserve it way more than myself. So, yeah, I'm in jest, but you uh, you have won it a number of times, and it's been very well deserved. Um, so we we will jump to um, Sam. Sam, you you were the catalyst behind this. Uh, we'll get to get to why in a little bit, but tell us. Um, Tell us your backstory. So, yeah, thanks for having me back on the podcast and uh, just happy to be back on talking birds and all things duck stamps. But kind of where, <laughs> where my start happened, I was born in Aberdeen, South Dakota. So I was I was born right into the prairie pothole region, you know, forced into it, if you will. And uh, I was lucky enough to grow up in the great state of South Dakota, chose to go to college at North Dakota State based on proximity to good waterfowl hunting. And, uh, ever since then have kind of led a path of hunting industry careers. Um, I, I like to tell people that I never really had a real job. I kind of retired right out of college and, uh, have, have been doing (laughs) professional photography and video and traveling and, and being able to hunt all over the country and, and document it, um, as my career for the last, uh, a little over a decade now. So I've been, I've been very lucky. Cool. And in your, your call, you said you're. You're calling into this podcast from a campground. So, so what are you doing? That's I, I got to believe it's a fun adventure that you're on right now. Yes, I'm already. This is the first hunt of the year. Uh, met up with a bunch of guys, and so uh, deer season in North Dakota starts on Friday at noon, and so we're uh, here a couple of days early doing a bunch of scouting and getting ready for that. And uh, yeah, I had you know I had really good service, but as people have started to show up in the campground, the uh, bandwidth in the middle of nowhere here has started to diminish. So I apologize if there's any breakup on my end. Uh, it's a good excuse though. Starting your, your hunting season Friday, you said Friday at noon. So September 1st at noon, you're, I think you're going to beat, uh, beat the rest of us on this call. I know, um, prairie grouse opens, um, here very quickly in Montana and, um, uh, Wyoming and Nebraska as we're recording this, but uh, my season will be just a week behind. As we transition to the meat of um, this episode focused on duck stamps and how they benefit the uplands, I want to give a shout out to Onyx Hunt, a national sponsor 
of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever and a supporter of On the Wing podcast as well. Um, Onyx Hunt helps us create the places that all of you love to roam with your bird dogs. Right now, you can use the code PFQF and get 20% off your Onyx Hunt membership with a portion of the proceeds from that purchase going back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Wildlife Habitat mission. Again, that's the code PFQF gets you 20% off and earns Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever a donation from Onyx. All right, so let's let's transition. Scott, you're you're the duck stamp expert on this conversation. Tell us a little bit about the duck stamp, where you know the history of it, um, what it's accomplished. Give us a little bit of an overview of the federal duck stamp. Sure. So uh, back in the 30s, during the Great Depression and the, the massive drought that we were having, waterfowl numbers plummeted significantly due to the drought and loss of habitat. And so there was a commission established by the United States um, to try to figure out a plan to do something about this, help waterfowl populations. And there was a number of people that were brought together. One of those was Ding Darling, who was a a writer in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, and an avid outdoorsman. And ultimately, to kind of cut it short, this commission recommended uh, the establishment of the federal duck stamp. The Migratory Bird Stamp Act is, but most people know it as, as the duck stamp. And, and the idea here is anybody that was 16 years of age that wanted to hunt migratory waterfowl had to purchase a duck stamp. And the proceeds of that duck stamp went directly back into acquiring habitat for waterfowl. It's probably the most efficient federal program there is in terms of management of the the funding because uh, almost, I believe it's around 98% mm. out of, you know, 98 cents out of every dollar goes directly back into acquiring land. So those funds are used only to acquire land, basically. They can't be used for other budget items. Mm. And that at, at the time, Ding Darling, he did a sketch of some mallards that was selected for the first duck stamp. And um, over the years, uh, the, the cost of the duck stamp, of course, has gone up. When it was first established, it was used solely to acquire national wildlife refuges mm. uh, for the purpose of waterfowl. Well, there was a manager uh, located at Wabe National Wildlife Refuge, uh, not far from where Sam grew up, uh, that worked at the refuge. I've actually worked there myself. Um, And he was dismayed at the loss of habitat that he was observing around the refuge boundaries. At that time, you know, we had national wildlife refuges and we had control over what happened within that boundary, but little to none outside of the boundary of those refuges. And he was seeing prairie potholes being drained at an alarming rate and the prairie being plowed to raise uh, crops. And he started 
really making waves and talking to anybody he could possibly find about the plight of what was going on in the Prairie Pajo region. And he got a hold of uh, a reporter from uh, Field and Stream, hmm. picked it up, and there was a uh, front page article that came out, and I forget which edition it was of Field and Stream, that right on the front page it showed an aerial photo of a bunch of prairie pajo wetlands that had been recently drained by ditches and in red lettering it said bye bye potholes hmm. that went out it really got the interest of the general public and really put some steam behind it. ultimately that resulted in congress passing the small wetland acquisition program or the 1958 amendment to the Duck Stamp Act. And what that amendment did was set aside a certain portion of the proceeds of duck stamps specifically to be used to purchase and protect breeding habitat for waterfowl in the Prairie Pajo region, which of course encumbers the Northwest part of Iowa, much of southern western Minnesota, uh, eastern Dakotas, and extends into portions of Montana, and then of course up into Canada. Um, so the the proceeds from the sale of those stamps was to be used solely to purchase lands in the Prairie Pajo region to protect it for breeding waterfowl habitat. Now a real significant difference that arose from the 1958 amendment is according to that amendment, these waterfowl production areas, that's what we call the fee title lands that we mm -hmm. buy, had to be open to hunting hmm. according to state regulation. Previously, most national wildlife refuges, when they're purchased, they're closed to all public use unless we take special action to open those. And mm -hmm. of course we've done that in a lot of cases for hunting. But the significant part of the small wetland acquisition amendment was it was required that these lands be open to hunting, fishing, and trapping according to state regulations. So hmm. uh, that's one of the reasons here in Minnesota we get so much support for acquiring WPAs by various partners, PF being a huge one. Uh, and the public, because they know that when we acquire these lands, they can go out and enjoy them. So when this program initially started, we had two parts to it. We would buy easements on wetlands on private land. It stayed private land, but the easements protected those wetlands from being drained. Mm -hmm. And then the other part was we'd buy the fee title, buy the land completely, all the rights to it, and those were waterfowl production areas. Early on in the process, we realized that a lot of waterfowl need upland cover to nest in. So we amended our acquisition program in 1987 to include buying grassland easements. And what these do is it still stays private land, but we purchase an easement on the land and it requires that the grassland always remain grassland and the wetlands can't be drained. So there's another big help mm -hmm. for you know upland game birds, obviously. It, it remains private land, but it, it protects that habitat for those critters that we enjoy. 
So I've been fortunate and blessed in my career to work at Devil's Lake, North Dakota, Sand Lake, right next to Aberdeen, South Dakota, Wabay in northeastern South Dakota, and now Litchfield. And I can share with you that especially it, after being around for 38 years, I'm kind of looking, what's the legacy I'm going to leave? And the most important legacy I can leave in my job is to buy land, Mm -hmm. protect it, and restore it for the American public to use. That's incredibly well said. That was wonderful. Exactly what I was hoping to kind of get a, a chronological timeline of the what the ducks have. You know, Sam, throughout that, I heard, I saw you nod in your head. You know, and Scott mentioned this is an area that real close to where you grew up, the Wabe National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, I'm wondering, as you're nodding your head, did you know the story of the connection to this this biologist in Wabe and how it sort of transformed the duck stamp program into being able to buy land for WPAs? You know, I didn't know the story of that biologist at the at the uh, refuge, like basically raising you know raising cane to get it out there yeah. that this these wetlands were diminishing. Um, but it's really cool to hear the chronological story because I've spent so much time in the eastern side of South Dakota, uh, you know, including driving over past the first ever waterfall production area, which isn't too far from Wabe, um, and just seeing the plaque, you know, like the duck stamp dollars. This is the first one that it purchased. And, um, you know, and when you went through talking about how uh, the uh, act was also amended in 1987 to purchase grasslands. Well, I was born in 1987. So I figured there might be a little coincidence there that, uh, you know, it's just, you know, like I I came into this world, right. As that amendment was also being put into place to, uh, to protect these places. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool to hear kind of the entire, like to hear it from somebody who's been in it for so long, talk about the importance of it and really break it down how it's gone along. Cause obviously you know, I've, I've read as much as I could on the duck stamp and, and why it helps and, and how it helps, but it's cool. This It's cool to hear those little behind the scenes things that actually made such a big difference in the whole thing. What, what's, do you know the name of the very first WPA that you mentioned? I, I, I don't, I didn't know it was there. It, McCarlson. McCarlson. Okay. Yeah, and, it, and there's a reason it's in the, within the Wabe wetland management district because of Fred Staunton. what's what's the biology fred's last name again staunton so we have fred staunton to thank for the creation of wpas yes and he's not recognized nearly as much as he should i 100 percent agree that's not a name that i'm familiar with but you know ding darling certainly is a name we we hear as is sort of the father of the duck stamp and Rightfully so, it gets a lot of credit, but yeah, yeah, Fred needs to be, it, say his last name again. Staunton. Staunton. I, I, I believe it's spelled S-T-A-U-T-O-N, I believe. Okay. Well, yeah, his name definitely needs to get out there because, I mean, what pheasant hunter or duck hunter hasn't had some just tremendous memories on WPAs and you know, while one person isn't responsible for all of it, you know, there's a seed of an idea, a catalyst, an impetus. And in this case, that was Fred. So thank you, Fred Staunton. And 
any of his uh, his family that may be listening. Um, all right, let's let's transition to we we it's it's pretty intuitive, especially if you're a bird hunter in the Prairie Pothole region, as to why we're talking about waterfall production areas on a pheasant and quail oriented podcast. I mean, Scott, you you brought up some of the upland connections, but I want to go to the biologist from our team in Aaron Sandquist. And, you know, this is a softball of all softballs for you, Aaron. Swing and pound this one into center field like Gabriel. <laughs> Call your shot. Call your shot and tell us how waterfall production areas benefit the uplands. Well, I will do that. But before I do, I think it's important that maybe we just describe what WPAs look like, uh, or at least the signs, because, you know, being in Minnesota for the last 21 years, I hear all the time, oh, that state land over there is where I went hunting. And there's a difference between wildlife management areas that are owned by states and and the ones we're talking about today, which are waterfall production areas. So if you've ever seen that green and white sign, those are the properties we're talking about today. And so, um, you know, Scott talked about breeding duck habitat. You know, we're talking small wetlands, we're talking adjacent grasslands. And guess what? That just happens to be important uh, duck breeding habitat, but also covers the two priorities for pheasants and pheasant habitat, which is nesting and brood rearing cover and winter cover. And so, there, I mean, there's just a great nexus there between duck habitat and pheasant habitat. And that's why we're so involved in you know, these partnerships with Fish and Wildlife Service and all the multiple benefits that come with WPAs across the Prairie Pothole region. Yeah, and I want I want to shout out to our quail audience too. It's it's really intuitive in the northern range for the pheasant hunting audience. In my opinion, WPAs happen to be where the best winter cover exists for pheasants because you think about those great big cattail sloughs in Minnesota, the Dakotas. Um, Iowa, that's where pheasants survive harsh winters like the one we had last year. But I've also hunted quail in WPAs or on WPAs in Nebraska, in Kansas. Um, it, it, you know, the, the WPAs are super relevant across the uplands uh, for a wide variety of uplands, in, including prairie grouse. I think about sharp tails, um, yeah, I can think of some magical hunts that I've had for sharp tails in um, North Dakota, South Dakota, on waterfall production areas as well, Hungarian partridge. So while it says waterfall in their name, um, you know, pheasants forever and quail forever want to claim a little bit of piece of that because there's an awful lot of great habitat there. Um, Aaron, let's stick with you for a moment and talk. You know, we, we we've talked about waterfall production areas, but we really tackle WPAs in our mission through two efforts, acquisitions and restorations. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about how we work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on both of those fronts. Yeah, so as it relates to fee title acquisition, in, in my mind at least, there's kind of two paths on how we partner with the Fish and Wildlife Service. And there may be nuances in, in different states and areas that, that changes this, but at a high level, um, the first way is the Fish and Wildlife comes to Pheasants Forever and 
they have a high priority strategic parcel that's up for sale that they want to acquire themselves with duck stamp funds um, for a variety of reasons. Maybe their the Fish and Wildlife Service process isn't conducive to the seller's timeline and the seller needs to move much quicker than the Fish and Wildlife could. So they come to Pheasants Forever and say, hey, Pheasants Forever, can you help us acquire this property right now and then we'll work through our our federally required process and purchase it with duck stamps you know through that normal process which may take one to two years or something like that so so that's just kind of we're just stepping in assuming some of the risk making sure the property gets temporarily protected while the fish and wildlife goes through their process um the second one that's been hugely successful in minnesota for sure but also other states is you know just kind of the mindset of trying to accelerate and piggyback the existing effort of buying WPAs and protecting land as WPAs um, with the, with duck stamp dollars. And so like in Minnesota, for example, we have the legacy amendment. Um, we have the NACA, North American Wetland Conservation Act. We have all of our chapters and grassroots local partners um, that come together and try to double down, so to speak, the effort of buying and protecting waterfall production areas. And so there's a lot of great partnerships across uh, the states of our footprint that are doing some of that work and trying to, you know, leverage, so to speak, duck stamps that are, are protecting these same WPAs. Yeah. What's, um, what do you view as some of our signature, are there any signature projects that you'd like to highlight that, that people would, they, oh, I didn't know Pheasants Forever did that. Aaron? Well, I don't know if I want to highlight one. I love them all. And, you know, like, for example, I think in Minnesota, we had, we're approaching 200 projects um, mm. that have been protected as WPAs. And, and there's several in the Dakotas and Iowa. So I have my little personal favorites that mean something to me or have a good story. Or maybe they're eight miles from my home in central Minnesota, you know, things like that. But what I would encourage folks to do is go find a WPA, mm -hmm. you know, in the parking lot, there's generally signage that kind of attributes the partners and, and find your own perfect WPA that you want to go and, and uh, utilize. Like Scott said, the American public, that's what these are for. Yeah. I think about at, at a personal level, one of my favorite pieces of public land in the world is in Western Minnesota. And like you, I'm not going to hotspot it. I'm not going to put a pin down on it, but um, every time I have a new, new dog, a new puppy, I hunt this piece of property first. I've, uh, it's always been pheasant opener in Minnesota. And my first three bird dogs pointed their very first rooster that I successfully hit, <laughs> um, within a hundred yards of each other in like over a decade span i i mean it sounds preposterous but 07 with trammel 2012 with pup named izzy 2014 with a pup named esky three in a row opening day honest to goodness like a hundred yards from each other over like a 600 acre wpa it's like i told my wife when I die, you can put the ashes right here in this quadrant. <laughs> I don't know that that's legal, but you get you get the sentiment of how important that is to me and how special. Unfortunately, my fourth bird dog, Gitchy, didn't point her rooster on the. She didn't keep the streak going, but uh, it, 
she has pointed a, a bird on that WPA, but it's just, some of these places are just absolutely magical, whether it's pheasant hunting, duck hunting, or just simply bird watching. You know, we, we just don't have enough of these wild places in waterfall production areas create some just gems on the landscape um, in the Prairie Pothole region. Scott, it, practical question for you. Aaron explains, you know, we're helping with land acquisition. We're doing habitat restoration. Do you get any pushback in the halls of government these days with, why are you working with Pheasants Forever on, on waterfall production area projects? Is that even a question anymore? No, it isn't. I don't know that it ever really was um, that I was aware of. It, it's just a perfect partnership. Um, it, it just blows my mind away. I'll share when I interviewed for this position over here and, and uh, the refuge supervisor at the time when he called me to offer me the job, we were talking about it. And he said, Scott, you're going to be blown away when you move to Minnesota. Hmm. and see all of the partnership opportunities there are. And I, even after 20 years of being here, I'm still blown away with the things that we can pull off. Uh, cons putting conservation on the landscape in the upper Midwest is not easy. And it takes a village. Everyone's heard that, mm -hmm. you know, that term, but it's true. It takes a village. You need lots and lots of folks working with you to make these things happen. And Pheasants Forever, I'm just going to pull it, plug in, is, is phenomenal to work with. So, no, I don't, I don't hear that. Aaron mentioned a key phrase that I've, I've brought up ad nauseum, the Legacy Amendment, on this podcast. And I'm sure non-Minnesota listeners are like, oh my gosh, Bob, quit talking about the Legacy Amendment. Um, but I think it's worth pounding just over and over how monumental the Legacy Amendment has been in changing the landscape for the better in the state of Minnesota. And if we could replicate this legislation and this funding mechanism in other states, we'd live in a much better place. Um, so Scott, tell me, uh, you know, what, what's the legacy amendment done from your perspective? Well, when you were asking, um, Aaron about favorite WPA, one thing that come to mind was one in our district. Uh, it's the first build a wildlife area WPA acquisition I was involved in. Hmm. So this gentleman was dead set on the Fish and Wildlife Service owning his land. And this was before the Legacy Amendment was passed. And we only get a certain amount of allocation of duck stamp dollars each year in Minnesota. And this was a high priority track, but it was not quite raising to the top each year. I had to hold this gentleman off for five years. The very first year the Legacy Amendment passed and Pheasants Forever put in their proposal to buy WPAs, as soon as that was approved, I got on the line with Aaron and said, I got a track. Hmm. And we were able to jump on that and buy that immediately from that individual. He held out that long 
and was dedicated. And there's another story behind WPAs. I know lots of people have their favorite WPA. Those of you that use those WPAs, each one has a story behind it, how it came to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people don't need to know that. I take great pleasure in knowing that young people will be able to enjoy those WPAs in the future. And they don't need to know that story, but there are significant stories. And oftentimes it's people that had that conservation ethic and wanted to leave that legacy. And they wanted to make sure that those lands were in some kind of conservation public ownership. I I remember, I'm trying to think of the year this was. I want to say it was like 2018. The federal government was shut down right at Pheasant Opener. And we had a call to action to contact the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service headquarters in D.C. to open up waterfall production areas in advance of the for pheasant opening day and i swear the number one action alert we've ever had the response was um calling the u.s fish and wildlife service headquarters open up wpas for the pheasant opener there it was absolutely top because so many people cherish these federal lands as public access. Uh, uh, do, you, do you remember that? Yeah, go ahead, Scott. I remember clearly, and I just wanted to say, because of our location, we're not far from Minneapolis-St. Paul. And one of the things I just love to do during hunting season is just drive around and mm-hmm. look at all the people enjoying our WPAs. We get hit hard here. And it's really, really nice for people that can't take that full weekend or take several days or can't afford to go somewhere and pay for hotels. We're close enough. They can come out, use one of our WPAs, get back that night and still have that experience. So I I really take a lot of pleasure in seeing that public use so that I do remember that clearly. Yeah, I'm looking looking it up real quick. That was 2013 is when that happened. And uh, they were opened up and it was hugely celebrated. It was earlier days of social media, but people were posting all sorts of photos with roosters in front of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service signs. There was celebration and it was a, a really, really positive thing that uh, that our members had a role in making sure happened and was, was open for for the pheasant opener. Uh, let's let's transition. Sam, I've hardly let you talk and you were the impetus for this conversation stamp it forward that's that's where i want you to start tell tell our listeners if they've been living under a rock what stamp it forward is and um then we'll get to to the next phase of that yeah no uh it's okay that i haven't talked much because i've actually been able to learn a lot and just be able to hear the stories from people who are involved in it every day has been pretty cool so thank you all for that um but yeah, Stamp It Forward started uh, in 2019. It was a uh, you know kind of a wild idea on on my part, and uh, admittedly so. Even my older brother, who owns Public Land Tees with me, um, I told him the idea, and he was like, "Ah, we'll see. You know, we'll <laughs> see see how that goes." And so the the concept of it was, you know, starting to learn all of these conservation tools. You know, Pittman Robertson Act, the Duck Stamp, different government programs that are in place to funnel money directly to the ground 
uh, you start to un better understand how that all works. And the duck stamp, in my mind, seemed like, okay, you have waterfowlers buy it, but on a broader scale, it seemed like everybody who hunts, fishes, and recreates outdoors should be at least understanding what the duck stamp does for outdoor recreation and habitat and land. And it I kind of set out to make it my goal to educate people. So that first year, all I did was I made a big post. Uh, we took out $2,500 cash and I drove around to a bunch of different post offices and bought a hundred federal duck stamps. And, <laughs> and then I, yeah. And then I encouraged people to uh, Venmo me money directly. And I just said that with 100% of the donations, we will go out and we will buy additional federal duck stamps. And then once we had this big pile, we started giving the duck stamps away with every item that we sell on our website. And since we give $5 from every item we sell back to conservation, it was a way to roll one fundraiser into another and really educate a bunch of people about the duck stamp where the money goes. And, uh, you know, in that first year we bought just over a thousand stamps and raised $25,000 <laughs> for the duck stamp program and sold a bunch of shirts and raised a bunch more money for different access projects and habitat. Um, and then it kind of just snowballed from there. So we, you know, year one was over a thousand stamps year two, we were just shy of 1600 stamps year three. Uh, we dropped a little bit. We went to about 1200 and then last year in 2022, rather than, uh, you know, leaving it open-ended with the goal of as many as possible. Uh, we put a 2000 stamp goal out there and right at the end of 2022, we, uh, received a donation from Shields actually to help us put over the top and raise $50,000 in a single fall, uh, to purchase 2000 wow. federal duck stamps, uh, and raise, yeah, raise money in a single year. <laughs> well, kudos to you that, I mean, honestly, think about that folks. This you add all those numbers up together and um that's over five thousand duck stamps you've bought in the last few years isn't it yeah so we're just shy uh like just shy of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of duck stamps <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, can so does the fargo post one of the fargo post office just say Hey, Sam, how many do you need this year? <laughs> so a funny story about that, actually. Um, and this was another education point. And, and there's a there's another you know thing going on with that right now. But we bought 100 and I actually got a ton of hate for it because people thought <laughs> that I was going to be taking away the opportunity for people in the Fargo uh. area to go duck hunting. And we really had to educate people that you can go online any time yeah. of day and buy an e-stamp. So I wasn't, I, I promise I wasn't taking away anybody's opportunity, but since then we have, uh, tried to, uh, make it, uh, easier on people's minds. And so every time we order, you know, a hundred, 200, 500 stamps, we, uh, go to usps.com and order them directly from the post office. And so they don't have to go through one of the local post offices and, and I don't want to make anybody mad. I just want to yeah. educate people that we're out there raising money. Well, I apologize on behalf of the masses for anybody that gave you grief over trying to buy duck stamps. I go, like no good deed goes unpunished, but but at least uh, at least there's a little bit of learning there now, and um, people see your overall your your heart is in the right place for this perspective. Take us to the Prairie Pothole Duck Rock, which uh, which is coming up this year. Yeah. So, 
you know, the last four years, we've just asked people to donate money. You know, individuals, uh, partner brands, companies um, have just asked us to send money directly uh, with with no real, you know, like no way to earn it. So this year, I figured it might be a good way to earn people's donations rather than just asking for them to send us money and came up with the idea to do a hundred mile hike through the Prairie Pothole region so we can kind of document the process and show people the landscape. And so I'm going to hike on September 13, 14, and 15. I'll be starting in North Dakota and I will be migrating south into South Dakota. Uh, but I'll, but uh, yeah, over three days, I'll hike a hundred miles. Uh, and uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure where I'm going to start yet, but I'll be finishing at the Sand Lake National Wildlife Refuge uh, in South Dakota. So that'll be the, the final destination. Ah, very cool. So Sand Lake comes to to full circle here and you said you're starting on september 13th yes yep that'll be the the start so yep so this episode will will drop september 6th so one week from today as you listen to this sam will be um kicking off the the prey pothole duck rock and so if folks want to um, as you say, contribute, earn, earn the contribution. How do they get involved? Yeah. So this year, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one to swing for the fences. So we are attempting to raise a hundred thousand dollars this year to buy federal duck stamps. So I figure a thousand dollars a mile and, uh, really breaking it down. You know, in the past we had, we had asked people to send in a $25 donation, uh, or more and mm-hmm. wanted to lower that barrier, uh, of entry for people getting involved. And so you can donate as little as 10 cents a mile or 10 bucks. And so you can go to the, our website, uh, publiclandtees.com forward slash duck ruck, and it'll take you to a pledge page and you can donate. Yeah. 10 bucks, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, and all the way up to $2,500 or a custom amount if you want. Um, but yeah, so we're, We've got a little over $5,000 already in there. We did our initial uh, 2,500, have had quite a few donations come in since then, and as well as a a partner brand donating $2,000 to that cause, Um, but really just getting this all ramped up. And I think uh, the majority of the donations will come in as I do the the hike through the Prairie Pothole region. Great. That's fabulous, Sam. Kudos to you for, you know, putting your... Well, where your feet, where your heart is. <laughs> uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about uh, 100 miles, three days. What's uh, what's your training regimen? So I have been, um, my goal when I'm hiking it, I'm not going to be carrying a whole lot of weight. That's, I mean, I'd, I'd rather walk with as little as I can. I'll have a pack on and probably uh, haul a few decoys along just, uh, just because, <laughs> but, um, I've been training, uh, with a 40 pound pack, uh, just to get my feet in shape so that when I do the longer distances, I won't fall apart. So I've been, um, pretty much every day I do at least four miles, uh, and then all the way up to 10. Uh, depending on the day, just trying to get my body in shape and be ready to, to walk that far. But, um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be something I'm hoping that the weather cooperates a little bit, but wind, rain or shine or whatever, I'll be out there, uh, walking along. So are you camping along the way or do you have hotel destinations you're going to, or how, how's that work? Yeah. So Josh is flying out. Uh, so he's going to fly out to Fargo and we're going to hop in the old public land bus and uh-huh. he is going to leapfrog me in the uh, in the school bus, uh, so I'll have a destination with a parked school bus that I can crawl in, and he's going to 
cook good food and I'll go sleep in a bed and then wake up and do it all over again. But, um, but yeah, it should be fun. We've got, uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, partners in the industry have graciously donated a whole pile of gear. So we, right now it's, we're sitting at well over, uh, 50 items to give away along the hike. So people who donate have a chance to win a bunch of cool gear, artwork from Ryan Kirby, um, duck calls, decoys, you know, you name it, we'll have uh, many thousands of dollars of stuff to give away. So every couple miles I can go live and give an update of how far I am on the hike and, and how it's going and, and people can, you know, win some gear to get ready for the fall. That's super cool. Publiclandtees.com forward slash duck ruck. And if folks want to follow along on your social channels, where do you want people to be pointed towards, Sam? Uh, so yeah, so my social, uh, my Instagram is at Sam Soholt and then my, the public land tees page is at public land tees. So we'll probably do a lot of, uh, live streams on both of the Instagram channels at once. So Josh can drive alongside of me and, and stream from the, from the public <laughs> land tees page and I can stream from mine and, uh, yeah, we'll just be, you know, slogging along out there. Cool. Cool. Very cool. Thanks for, for doing this. That's a noble effort to hundred thousand dollars four thousand duck stamps that's that's pretty cool you you got to be the single biggest duck stamp buyer in the history since uh, <laughs> since it was created i i gotta believe right you know i would say short of some big corporations like you know cabela's or bass pro that buy a pile of stamps every year i'd say we're sneaking right right up on it but uh <laughs> yeah. But yeah we'll do the do the hike over three days and then we'll celebrate with some free beer from onyx maps uh at fargo brewing in fargo on the 16th so if any of you happen to be in the fargo area on saturday september 16th you can come out and drink a free beer and celebrate raising a whole pile of money right on Right on. All right, let's turn the corner and um, uh, go around the horn with uh, some closing thoughts. Um, Scott, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, as we put a bow on this episode, what, what sort of closing thoughts do you have on the intersection between duck stamps, upland birds, and a little bit of promotion thrown in there? Well... I, I just think I'd like to share during the course of my career, when I began working with the Small Wetland Acquisition Program, I thought primarily ducks. And over the course of my career, I've come to appreciate so much how these lands contribute to so many other things. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, grassland birds as a whole or grassland critters are really in trouble because of the loss of grassland. So. You're talking meadowlarks, monarchs, pollinators, grasshopper sparrows, salamanders, leopard frogs. And then in addition to that, there's all the other values of clean water, clean air, carbon sequestration, flood mitigation, groundwater recharge. Hmm. I mean, you can go on and on and on about the public benefits of these lands. But as I said earlier, the thing I... I guess I value the most is the fact that these are open for the American public to go enjoy and use. And it's critical that we expose our younger people to the out of doors. If you don't get to experience something or understand it, how can you appreciate it? Yeah. So that's, that's the, that's probably one of the biggest benefits that I see. Well said. And, and, you know, it, it connects right to what Sam's doing, you know, 
exposing duck stamps and the power of what the duck stamps do, do for habitat and historically done for, for habitat through video, through social media, through podcasts. You know, that's that's an audience that probably didn't know about the duck stamp 10 years ago. So um, Scott, really well said. And Sam, thank you for, for your part in delivering upon um you know, that request from, from Scott. Um, I'm going to give the last words to Sam. So Aaron, go ahead and uh, give us your closing thoughts. Yeah, I got three things, you know, first, just to kind of a shout out to Scott and all of his uh, cohorts and colleagues, the fish and wildlife service. I mean, they're government employees and sometimes government employees get a bad rap, you know, and, and some of it may be that they've, they bring on themselves, but in the case of fish and wildlife service as a whole, they are a group of very passionate, talented individuals that really want to make the world a better place. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to work with folks like Scott and, and everybody across the Fish and Wildlife Service in, the, in my areas of impact. And um, just a thanks to them because they really do take their job seriously and they're not just collecting a paycheck. They're, they're making a true difference. So the other thing I wanted to mention um, is we, we didn't talk much about restoration work. And um, certainly we're protecting a lot of new WPAs that are popping up you know, on Onyx Hunt and people are finding those, but um, equally or greater to the number of acres that we're acquiring, we're, we're enhancing or restoring existing public land, our WPA habit, or habitat on WPAs. And so you talked about, you know, we kind of, we're creatures of habit, Bob, and, and we go back to the same WPAs that are comfortable that we know, but I would challenge everybody to go out and drive around and look for that new WPA that you haven't hunted um, or one that's maybe been freshly restored or enhanced because it may become your new favorite mm -hmm. WPA. And I think in Minnesota alone, we've restored or enhanced about 50,000 acres of WPA habitat in the last, say, 15 years. So um, there, there's good motivation for you to go and, and check out some new properties. And explain just real quickly what restoration means from a Pheasants Forever perspective. What are we, what are we doing on those lands? Well, basically, we're trying to create early successional habitat. So it could be diversity seeding, you know, in the form of, you know, taking a brome field and making it into, um, you know, a diverse warm season, cool season, native grass and flower mix. It could be enhancing an existing W, uh, or ex uh, excuse me, it could be enhancing an existing wetland. It could be taking a wetland that maybe wasn't able to be restored when it was acquired, and now we're going to restore it. Um, it could be conservation grazing. It could be prescribed fire, um, you know, trying to create a better, more productive uh, grassland habitat wetland complex. Um, and then the last thing, you know, and, and kind of to Scott's point, if you care about game species, if you care about non-game species, if you care about clean water, um, you should be buying a duck stamp every year. Yeah. So I uh, just challenge folks to make sure they do that. If Even if they're not a waterfall hunter, um, there's good reason to be buying a duck stamp every year. Right on. Yeah, we we often say, you know, if, if buy, a, buy a duck stamp for waterfall, buy a duck stamp for the uplands. Um, the moral of the story is buy a duck stamp. You know, even if you, uh, even if you're not gonna be out there at four in the morning chasing mallards in Canada geese, you know, buy a duck stamp for what it does for pheasant production, sharp tails, pollinator habitat, water quality. Great point, Aaron. Um, Sam, final words. Put a bow on this for me. So I just wanted to kind of reiterate and add to what all three of you already said about the importance of the duck stamp going beyond 
migratory bird species. You know, we touched on it a little bit earlier that it's, it goes so far beyond just birds that use it for the wetland purpose, mm -hmm. upland birds, obviously, as we've been talking about, but one of the main things that we have been trying to do with the Stamp It Forward project is to educate people that it, what it does beyond the people, like what it does beyond for people who just need to purchase it to be a waterfowl hunter. So on the big game side of things, it is of vital importance. If for, for all things like Scott was talking about, water quality, uh, erosion, uh, flood control, all of those things that go beyond even thinking about hunting, fishing um, related, just us living on the landscape. So I think my final thoughts are, is the duck stamp, like what, you know, what's good for the bird is good for the herd, right? Mm. So <laughs> buying a duck stamp protects 700 species of wildlife and plants that rely on wetland habitat for their existence. So again, go buy a duck stamp, donate to us. We'll go buy a duck stamp for you. It, uh, it really is one of the coolest conservation tools in existence. Right on. Right on. It, it absolutely is. And um, I'll throw that website out again. Publiclandtees.com forward slash duck ruck, R-U-C-K. They'll buy a duck stamp for you, Public Lands Tees. Help participate um, in the Prairie Pothole Duck Ruck kicking off September the 13th. Um, thank you guys, Scott Gloop, Aaron Sanquist, Sam Soholt. Really appreciate the conversation. My final thought is Fred Stoughton. Thank you. Simply thank you. Your name's not out there enough, so let's get it out there a little bit more. Fred Stoughton, the father of waterfowl production areas. I'm Bob St. Pierre, reminding you to always follow the dog, including at waterfall production areas. They'll find roosters, they'll find quail, they'll find all sorts of wonderful things. Thanks for listening, folks.